this morning will be uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Good morning. Let's, um, let's go to God in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've blessed us with and the opportunity to come together to worship you, uh, to focus our minds on the sacrifice of Christ, and to learn more about your word. And this morning, Father, as we, as we study on why we believe in your word, help us to focus our minds on the scriptures, on the things that you've told us in your word, that if we believe in you, then we will believe the words that you have given to us, that you have breathed out yourself so that we may be better stewards of it, so that we may uh, have better knowledge of it to share with those around us. Father, we pray as we go throughout uh, the rest of this day and the rest of um, this week, Father, that, that we will always focus on you, that we will be the light in this world, and that we will not hide our light under a basket, but let it shine for all to see. We pray, Father, all of these things in your Son's name. Amen. Charles Dickens said, The New Testament is the very best book that, was, that ever was or ever will be known in the world. President Dwight Eisenhower said, The Bible is endorsed by the ages. Our civilization is built upon its words. In no other book is there such a collection of inspired wisdom, reality, and hope. Indeed, the Bible is a wonderful work of not only literature, but also history, of truth, of prophetic glances at the future, and things that were well beyond the understanding and reasoning of man when it was written. It is in the pages of the Bible where we learn about the one who created us. We learn about how we are connected to him and how we are separated from him, and of course, how we are to bridge that gap of separation. The Bible also tells us how that bridge was designed and granted to us by God Himself in the form of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that was promised for centuries, who fulfilled everything that was prophesied about Him. The Bible is the Word of God. It is inspired by Him. And it's done so through the influence of the Holy Spirit, which is what we heard in our Scripture reading just moments ago. But why do we believe this? Why do we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Last week, we began this sermon series investigating why we even believe in God. And that's the fundamental belief that must come before we ever turn to the pages of the Bible. Because God is seen in His creation. We cannot believe in the Bible as God's inspired Word if we don't first believe in God Himself. Because if we don't believe in God, then we don't believe who the author of the Bible is. We need to understand that there is a higher power. When man understands that, then they can seek to come to know him better through his inspired word. So why do we believe that the Bible is his inspired word? And the answer, because the Bible says so, is not sufficient. It shouldn't be sufficient for us who believe in the Bible, and it, should, and it most definitely is not sufficient for those who don't believe in the Bible. If someone comes to you and says, well, why do you believe this, this book of words that man put together is the inspired word of God? And you say, well, the Bible says so. 
Well, the Harry Potter book series says that wizards are real. You can't have both, right? So you have to have a better understanding. You have to have a different belief outside of just what the scriptures say. Now, of course, because the Bible says so is an answer. The Bible does say this. We just read it this morning, but it should not be your only answer. So what evidences do we have that point to the heavenly inspiration of the scriptures? This morning will not be an exhaustive list, but hopefully enough to at least get you started and motivated to find others for yourself as you study throughout the week. Now, I put my email on the slides, minister at loveland.church, easy to remember. If you have questions or you find some interesting things as you go through your studies this week, email me, reach out to me. I want to hear them. I want to converse with you about this and help you build your studies on this. So let's begin by looking at some of these evidences. And first, we're going to look at the consistency of the Bible. Now, the Bible is a collection of 66 books. Most of us know that. You can look at the the index at the beginning of your Bible to see that and count them out. But these 66 books were written over the course of 1,600 years. That's 40 generations of writers. In fact, that's almost four, it's, it's written by approximately 40 different writers from, four, from multiple different beginnings, different backgrounds, different walks of life, different cities, upbringings, etc. For example, Moses, who was born a Jew, was raised as an Egyptian politician in Egyptian schools, Egyptian frame of learning. Or Amos, as we studied in our last sermon series, who was a herdsman. He pushed sheep around all day. David, who was also a shepherd, who eventually became a king, and his son Solomon, who was a prince, raised in the court, but eventually became king as well. Or how about Joshua, who was a military general? Nehemiah, who bore the cup of the king? Or Daniel, a faithful Jew serving kings in unfaithful kingdoms? All of these men came from different walks of life, were raised much differently from each other, but still managed to write all these things together. How about Peter, a fisherman? Paul, a, a, a rabbi, a persecutor of the church, of Jesus, a tent maker? Or Luke, who was a physician? Or Matthew, a tax collector? This is just a sampling of some of the 40-some authors who wrote the words of the Bible, and none of which were individuals of some ancient circle of scribes or historians or, or documentarians. For this small sampling of authors all wrote in different parts of the ancient world, in different languages even. The Bible was written on three different continents in three different languages across 1,600 years. Asia, Africa, and Europe, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek were the languages that it was written in. Moses wrote while he was in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote while he was imprisoned in a dungeon. Paul, inside a prison as well for some of his writings, or while he was journeying on his missionary travels. Luke, while traveling, often with Paul. Or John, while he was exiled on Patmos. All the scriptures were written while the authors were experiencing different things in their lives. Whether it be the time of war when David wrote, or or Joshua wrote, or a time of peace when Solomon wrote, 
or the writings of Paul that fluctuate from a time of joy to a time of sorrow, all while covering a multitude of topics, all of which, by the way, were and still are quite controversial. Like the origin of man and the creation of the world, God's nature and the nature of sin and our relationship with God and how we can ultimately be redeemed or marriage, divorce and remarriage or same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, etc. All of these controversial topics covered through 1,600 years. And through all of that, the scripture is harmonious and it is consistent in its message, tone and truth. The Bible says that God never changes, and we see that in the Scripture. God does not change through 1,600 years of inspired writing. There is no other literary work that has this kind of uh, composition. There's the word. Imagine, I, I mentioned Harry Potter earlier. Many of us here have probably read the book series, or just think about any book series that you've read. But I'm going to focus on Harry Potter. Imagine if the Harry Potter series was written by ten different authors who never communicated with one another and wrote the series over the course of, let's just say, 25 years. The continuity and the harmony of that story would be a mess. And if you look at the Star Wars series, (laughs) if that were to happen, the Harry Potter book series would probably have never even been published. We would have never heard of it. Or... Imagine if you took just ten authors who were all from the same walk of life, they spoke the same language, they came from the same continent, the same generation, and you have them write a book on a controversial topic. Let's say marriage, let's just say marriage, for example. You would not find harmony in that writing. You would find a book full of ideas and opinions from ten different writers. But you don't have that in the Bible. You don't have Paul saying, well, this is what I believe about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Or Jesus saying something completely different. You have harmony. The Bible is so beautifully written and compiled from beginning to end. In fact, the Bible itself covers the the beginning to the end. That is the Bible. Think about this. The Bible begins with man and God walking together in paradise. And then sin comes in and separates them. And the middle portion of the Bible is this ongoing struggle between man and God, and God desiring for man to return, to repent and return to Him. And it ends with those who have done what He has desired, who have repented and reconciled to Him through baptism, once again walking with Him in paradise. The Bible is beautifully bookended with this story of man and God together in the garden in paradise, and it ends again with man and God together in paradise. Over 1,600 years. The gate to the tree of life was closed off in Genesis, but it is opened again forever in Revelation. All of this through 1,600 years, 40 generations around 40 different authors, through three different languages, on three different continents. So how in the world could all of this unity be possible? Now we read earlier what Paul wrote about this in uh, 
2 Timothy, but Peter speaks about this as well. So if you want to turn in your Bibles real quick to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, Peter details this as well. Starting in verse 19 there. I'll wait till I hear the pages stop there for a second. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we have, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the reason why the Bible could have such harmony over so many years and generations and continents and languages, etc., is because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit through God, God through the Holy Spirit, is the author of the Bible. So understanding that this consistency is compelling evidence that the Bible is the Word of God, another piece of evidence for the inspiration of the Bible is, uh, is something that we talked about a little bit last week, uh, is the scientific foreknowledge of the Bible. Basically, detailing things that science would not learn about or find out until many, 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 many years later. Now, for brevity's sake, we're only going to cover a few of these today. We're going to look at three different verses and the foreknowledge that they show, but there are many, many more. So turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. That's where we're going to start um, in verse 22 there. One of the basic concepts of our planet and something that really wasn't determined to be scientifically true until uh, Magellan circumnavigated the globe, shortly followed by my ancestor, Sir Francis Drake, name drop, check. (laughs) Centuries before the circumnavigation of the world, between Pythagoras, Aristotle, Aristophanes, all of which were Greek philosophers who offered up uh, theories about the shape of the earth, But until man actually traveled around the world, was it held in academic belief that the world was in fact round. But centuries prior to those Greek philosophers was a prophet named Isaiah who shared this about the world in verse 22 of Isaiah chapter 40. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Now, before I get to the circular part, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Ever stop and think about that statement? When you look down at the ground, you can't see grasshoppers or even ants until you get down on the ground level. And when you're in space looking down on earth, you can't see the inhabitants. Isaiah is is telling us how great and big the world truly was. Something that was not really a a concept at that time. Now the word used for circle can also mean circuit or, or circular line. So this could be referring to either the shape of the earth or the motion or its orbit that it makes around the earth. 
Oh, I'm sorry, around the sun. I, I said that, and I was like, wait, that wasn't right. <laughs> Either way, Isaiah, centuries before science or theories were developed to talk about the shape of the earth or the fact that it revolved around the sun, there were years that it was, th- that it was thought that the sun revolved around the earth. Job 26, verse 7, which is an additional reading up there. Um, This uh, details how God has suspended the earth in space. Something that definitely wasn't known for for a long time. So there's definite astronomical knowledge that's displayed in the Bible. Now the next scientific truth found in the Bible wasn't discovered by man until the 1960s. That was just a few years ago. And this truth is found not only in Job chapter 38, verse 16. Turn over there, if you will. Job chapter 38, verse 16. But it's also talked about in the flood account of Noah, back in Genesis chapter 7, which reads, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now, by the way, this is the first time that rain or weather is actually detailed in the Bible, fun fact. But Job chapter 38, verse 16, adds something more to this. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? The recesses of the deep, the dark, deep caverns of the oceans, those were not discovered until echo mapping of the ocean began in the 1940s. But springs... Hot springs that feed the ocean were not discovered until the 1960s. They had always been theorized because of observations uh, around volcanoes um, and, and volcanology. But thousands of years before those discoveries, the writings of Job and the writings uh, uh, in uh, Genesis by Moses prove that only inspiration could provide such intimate details of God's creation. And turn over now to Genesis chapter 17. And this, this is quite possibly one of my fa- I know I say it all the time, but it is quite possibly one of my favorite evidences. Um, and I did not learn about this until uh, we had a nurse practitioner when Sarah was pregnant with Caleb um, tell us about this. A, in a doctor's office, told us about this, which, of course, sparked my curiosity and sent me to the Internet and, of course, to the Bible. But, uh, and I mentioned this last week, uh, but I wanted to go into further detail because this is really one of the most fascinating examples of inspiration and scientific foreknowledge within the Bible. In, in God's covenant sign to His people, which is the circumcision of males, God proves not only His power but also His wisdom. And defines for his people and all those who would practice this in the millenniums to come a scientific truth that would not be discovered until the 1950s. Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 10. Now, leading up to this, God is setting up his, the covenant of circumcision, the sign that would be to, uh, to be performed. Uh, starting in verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you should be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. 
Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, brought, uh, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. So now let's go back to 1935 and a Danish biochemist and physiologist named Henrik Dam. He performed tests on baby chicks and found there to be a compound that is vital to the coagulation of blood or, or making it clot, basically. This compound in German was called the Coagulationsvitamin, or Vitamin. Of course, in German, that starts with K, and that was later shortened to Vitamin K. Anyone who has had a baby knows that babies get a shot of Vitamin K the day they are born. Why? Well, uh, Vitamin K, by the way, Dom was eventually awarded the Nobel Prize for his work, but Vitamin K is a compound that is produced by bacteria in the intestinal tract of humans. And it causes the liver to produce a product called prothrombin, which is what causes blood to clot properly. Now, when babies are born, they come from a sterile environment. They don't have bacteria in their intestinal tract for some time for it to create this vitamin K, to create uh, that prothrombin. So, um, if we now fast forward to 1953 the classical clinical work, Holt Pediatrics, in which the authors observed that a newborn infant has peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and fifth days of life. Hemorrhages at this time, though often inconsequential, are sometimes extensive. They may produce serious damage to internal organs, especially to the brain, and cause death from shock and blood loss. So from birth to the fifth day, blood clotting is naturally poor in infants because it isn't until the fifth day that that bacteria starts building up in the infant's gut and that they start producing this vitamin K and this coagulating product of prothrombin. That's when it starts to develop and it starts to regulate. And that's why babies are given the shot the day after they're born to prevent brain hemorrhages uh, from occurring until that that process can start in them. But it gets better. It isn't until the fifth day that vitamin K and prothrombin start to regulate. In fact, the seventh day, in fact, the only time, the only time in a male's life in which their level of prothrombin to cause that clotting of blood is at 110%, higher than the normal the normal. Uh, level of this product is on the eighth day. On the eighth day of a male's life is the only day in which that level is at 110%, a time in which blood would clot much faster than it would in other times of their life. The eighth day of a male infant's life is the only day in which this surgery, which is what it is, could happen to make the clotting of blood more expedient than normal. In ancient times, when means to properly control bleeding or even understand bleeding at all, what bleeding was, where it came from, etc., God created a means to make His covenant possible. He made it bearable and manageable for the people so that the children would not die from this procedure but live and thrive. Dr. S.I. McMillan wrote in his book, we should commend the many hundreds of workers who labored at great expense over the, a number of years to discover that the safest day to perform circumcision is the eighth. Yet, 
As we congratulate medical science for this recent finding, we can almost hear the leaves of the Bible rustling. They would like to remind us that 4,000 years ago, when God initiated circumcision with Abraham, Abraham did not pick the eighth day after many centuries of trial and error. Neither he nor any of his company from the ancient city of Ur and the Chaldees ever had been circumcised. It was a day picked by the creator of vitamin K. Not only is Moses' words in Genesis chapter 17 scientifically accurate, but was millenniums ahead of its time. How else could Moses or Abraham have gained this knowledge without God's divine inspiration? Now, some may look at something like that and say, well, the Bible was translated and compiled by men. Yeah. Not before 1950, though. Many, many years before that. Many, many years before that concept was ever known. If that is the argument that's used, it is patently false. Now, these are just a few of the many examples of scientific truth and wisdom that are found in the Bible, but only recently confirmed through modern methods of science. Now, continuing on now, let's, let's look at another piece of evidence, of inspiration, and that is the fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. Indeed, books have been written, sermons given that go uh, on and on through all of the many fulfilled prophecies. Turn over to uh, chapter 41 of Isaiah, if you have your thumb back there. Uh, one page, basically, after where we were earlier in Isaiah 40. But Isaiah chapter 41, we're going to start in uh, verse 21 here in a moment. But the nature of this argument, of, of the inspiration of the Bible looks at the prophecies within the Old Testament that foretold events in great detail that were well beyond the scope of human speculation. Each time these prophecies were offered, they, attributed, they were attributed to the words of God. And God has declared that such evidence was proof of His existence, of proof of His power and superiority over man and all the idols that man had dreamed up to replace Him. Now let's look here in Isaiah chapter 41 at verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, what, uh, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Now, turn over uh, maybe a page or just down the page. Uh, chapter 42, verses 8 through 9 there. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory, is, uh, the, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So God provided these prophecies not just to warn His people, but also to prove that He is the Almighty. He is the only God. Now, staying in Isaiah, turn back to uh, chapter 13. Chapter 13, we're going to look at starting in uh, verse 17 there. But leading up to verse 17 here in chapter 13, Isaiah is documenting God's wrath and uh, the plan to take down Babylon. In the, verse, in, in the first verse, 
Isaiah details exactly who this vision is about. It's about Babylon. Now, go, jump down to verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the, stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and no delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the, the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pinch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. Indeed, the ruins of Babylon exist today. They have been found today in the outskirts and deserted areas of Iraq, where only wild animals roam. Of course, the entire book of Daniel documents the same things, including the fulfillment of this prophecy, which, by the way, this prophecy was made 200 years before it happened. Now, a few chapters later, in chapter 19... Isaiah brings forth another prophecy concerning the fall of Egypt, saying that it would be destroyed more by civil war than outside enemies, something that we still see ringing true today. Now, in our last sermon series, we noted the prophecy and fulfillment of the fall of Nineveh in Zephaniah. Uh, That was in chapter 2 of Zephaniah. Then the fulfillment of that prophecy in Nahum, and of course the historical and archaeological facts surrounding its fall and the modern desolation that continues within its ruined city walls in Mosul. Now these are just a few of the historically proven fulfillment of prophecies, not even grazing the surface really or mentioning the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies through Jesus, something that we'll look at next week as we continue our series and look at why we believe in Jesus. But if all these points thus far are not enough, here's one more reason to believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. The impact the Bible has had on civilization and individual lives throughout the course of history. There's no arguing that the Bible has had a great impact on art, on music, and on literature throughout the years. This morning we've already seen the impact it's had on education and on science And last week, we looked at how God's moral laws contained within the scriptures have influenced judicial systems today and governments, including our own here in America. Benjamin Harrison, the 23rd president of the United States, said, If you take out of your statues, your constitution, your family life, all that is taken from the sacred book, what would there be left to bind society together? Or how about number 32, Franklin Roosevelt, who said, We cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible has occupied in shaping the advances of the republic. Or FDR's successor, Harry Truman, who said, The fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings that we get from Exodus and Matthew, uh, from Isaiah and from Paul. Because of these impacts God's Word has made, it has transformed the lives of billions of people. Without God's Word, who would be here this morning? 
Without God's word, I would have never met my wife at church camp. Without the inspired scriptures, we wouldn't know how to be good spouses, how to be good parents or friends or neighbors or accountable employees or business owners or just a good person in general. Without the inspired word of God, we would have no hope. Our lives would be purposeless and this world would be chaos. Atheists on their deathbed, famous atheists, have said, What was the point of my life? I lived it and now I'm dead. That's because the purpose of life is well beyond this world. The purpose of this life is to serve the one who has created us, to connect back with him who we've been separated from because of sin. The evidences for the Bible as the inspired word of God is both objective and subjective. The objective evidence includes its unity, its foreknowledge, and its fulfillment of prophecy. And the subjective evidence is found in how it has impacted each and every one of us here today and the world around us. So the question this morning, why do you believe in the Bible? Now, I've shared with you a few reasons as to why I believe in the Bible, and I think it can be best summed up by my two favorite presidents. Good old Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. Abe Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. And Ronald Reagan said, within the covers of, the single, of that single book, referring to the Bible, are all the answers to all the problems that face us today, if only we'd read and believe. If you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then the truths held within should bring you to obedience. This morning, if you believe and you wish to obey the gospel that this inspired book gives us for the remission of your sins, to be baptized and repent, don't delay. And if we can assist you with that or any other need that you have this morning, won't you come now while we stand and sing?